Father, we ask this morning that by your Holy Spirit that you would reveal that which you want us to hear, learn, understand, and apply in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that your word is so rich, so deep, so instructive, so encouraging, so full of what we need, not only for today, but for tomorrow and the day after that. And Lord, we pray that uh, this would have an eternal impact on us, that we would use this time, redeem it in our lives to be transformed and conformed more into the image of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen. This is probably the most familiar of the parables of Jesus. All of you have heard of the prodigal son. Maybe you're visiting and haven't, but this is also one of the, one of the longest of the parables in the scriptures. Uh, even many non-Christians and unchurched people are familiar with the term prodigal. Uh, that someone that is living a, 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 an unrighteous lifestyle, uh, someone that's living opposed to the rules and regulations that have been set up. Riotous living, you might hear that term as well. We've all seen movies and we've all seen storylines and books of the wandering and the rebellious son coming home. We've seen those, uh, they still, uh, those kind of storylines still resonate today. And everyone personally, think about yourself personally, everyone personally loves and appreciates second chances, especially when we get them, right? We love second chance. We don't always love second chance for everybody else, but we love them for ourselves, don't we? But there's a lot more here than second chances. This is resurrection. It's a, res- it's a rescued life from the jaws of death and destruction. This is the third parable in succession. If you're here with us last week, you, you heard the parable of the lost sheep and the, the parable of the coin, but this is the third parable in succession where Jesus addresses lost being found. He's speaking to the same audience. This is one content, we're, We read it last week as one section, and today as a different section, but this was one continuous thought from Christ, broken up into three parts, if you will. The one lost sheep in the wilderness, the one coin in the dark and the dust that couldn't be found, and the one lost son in the world and out in sin. There's also a mathematical progression uh, to these parables, as you might have noticed. You have a one out of a hundred, and then Jesus drops to a one out of ten, and then he drops down to a one out of two. So if you hate math, this should encourage you that God loves math. <laughs> one of a hundred, one of ten, one of... I, when our girls are like having a new section of math, I encourage them. I say, God created math. Yes, Satan might have put the alphabet in it. No, I'm just kidding. You know, the <laughs> algebra and all that stuff. But God is conveying something else here. Whether it's one in a hundred one in ten, one out of two, Jesus cares for every individual. Every individual matters to the Lord. In each of these parables, there's great joy over one soul coming to faith and repentance. One soul, heaven lets loose. But this last of the three connected parables, and they're all three of them intertwined, the last one here goes into much more depth. It's longer, as you saw, 
It goes into more depth in the first two, and it really gets to the heart and the mind of humanity, doesn't it? Gets to the heart and mind of mankind. And also gets to the very unique character of God. God's character is rather unique, wouldn't you agree? If you're taking notes, I've titled our study this morning, A Place for Prodigals. A Place for Prodigals. And we'll look at six specific viewing angles, if you will. We'll kind of come at the text from six different little viewing angles as we go through. I won't rattle them off now, I'll just give them to you as we go through the outline and go through these verses. This, this parable is most often thought of, when people think of this parable, because it is so commonly known, even, even outside uh, the church, people have heard of the prodigal son. They may not know much about it, but they've heard the term. But this parable is most often thought of as the story of the wayward son. The story of the wayward son. But it could more aptly be described as the parable of the loving and searching father. The parable of the loving and searching father. The father is far more important in the end than the son. Because without the father, the son doesn't have a chance, does he? Again, it's more than second chances. When you study scriptural meaning, the, the theological term are, uh, of studying scripture, hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, the methodology and how you study Scripture, how Scripture interprets Scripture, how you actually use the verses themselves, other verse in the Scripture, to render the correct meaning. Because it's possible, as Peter wrote, to twist, twist the Scriptures to your own destruction. Now, if you have the Holy Spirit and you allow the Scriptures to speak correctly and interpret them through Scripture's always interpret scriptures, then your hermeneutics, your, the way you study scripture, will actually land in truth every time. And first thing you do when you study scripture in your own personal Bible study, when you read the Bible, you always look for the first plain meaning of the text. What does it say? You don't look for the deep, mysterious parts first. Because there are deep, mysterious things in the scriptures, there's no doubt about it. There are pictures there are allusions to Israel. There are allusions to the church. There are allusions to the bride of Christ. But the first thing we do is, what is the plain meaning of the text? What does it say? And what does the passage around it say? In other words, what is the context of the passage? You have the 2020 rule, 20 verses above, 20 verses below. What is the context of the passage? The plain and most applicable meaning of this parable, when you look at the context, remember uh, that the uh, context is this, back in verses 1 and 2, chapter 15, same chapter, verses 1 and 2, we see all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him, to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes complained and said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. The context is Jesus is talking to people that are in obvious sin. They know it. Jesus knows it. The Pharisees know it. Pretty much everyone knows that because under, if you're in Israel in the ancient times, they still had the, they still followed the law and they still believed, they still believed that adultery was sin. America may not believe adultery is sin anymore, but they still believed adultery was sin. They still believed fornication was sin. They still believed drunkenness was sin. They still believed you know, that all, lying, all these things. And if they were really outwardly visible, everyone's in agreement that was sin. So the context was 
sinners that were obvious sinners to everybody, including themselves. And, but then you had the Pharisees that saw themselves as not sinners, and any sin they had was not visible on the outside. Where was it? It was on the inside. So on the outside, they looked very clean. They looked very well-adjusted. They looked holy, righteous. Boy, they had that holy look on them, the pious look, right? And so that was the context where Jesus was saying we've got uh, two groups. Um, or you know, uh, Luke is the one that records. This actually, the crowd is not a parable. The crowd is exactly what was there, a group of sinners and a group of Pharisees who did not consider themselves dirty, unclean, filthy, wicked sinners. So the pure and plain meaning of the text uh, is understood that the prodigal son is a picture of the lost sinners that knew they were in sin. That's the multitude that was around Jesus. And that the oldest son is a picture of the Pharisees of works and of religious pride. The Pharisees' works and religious pride. That is the, the plain meaning is that the prodigal is lost sinners. The oldest son is the Pharisees. The secondary view, there are, uh, whenever you read the scriptures, we've talked about this before, there's the principle of duality, that scriptures can mean multiple things at simultaneously the same time. The simple illustration I give is I am a husband, father, son, pastor, cousin, whatever you may, I'm multiple things at the same time, but at times you're wearing one specific hat and everyone pretty much understands which hat you're wearing, right? Well, in the scripture, there's the pure, straightforward meaning that will never change. Well, the secondary meanings and stuff don't change either, but they're secondary, and they're helped you to understand a broader range of the Bible. Does that make sense? The pure meaning is the immediate application. The secondary meanings will help with other passages of Scripture. So the second, a secondary view here can be related in the Jewish context and the ministry of Christ and the future ministry of the apostles. And that would be this, the prodigal equaling lost Gentiles. You see that the son is in the swine and he's in a faraway country. So it can be a picture of the prodigal being the lost Gentile world. You remember the Jewish people did not like pork. Even today you might have Jewish friends that, are, uh, that, that refuse to eat pork. And so it can be a picture of the uh, lost Gentile world. And then the oldest son can be a picture here of Jews depending on the law for salvation and depending on the law for redemption. And that, obviously, the Pharisees would fit both of those models because they not they were really kind of pure and clean, but they were also depending on the law for their salvation. And then a third view here, a third view can be that the prodigal son equals lost sinners, and the oldest son equals those that actually are saved who've lost their first love. That meaning, so all of these can actually be applicable, and you could actually make these fit, and they would be in harmony with the rest of the Scriptures. So remember, when you study the Scriptures, what's the first plain meaning? Well, that's what we're going to really look, focus on today, that the prodigal is lost sinners and that the oldest son is the Pharisees. That's what we'll focus on this morning, but you can actually teach and learn through the other viewpoints as well. Gentile, Jewish world, and even lost sinners, 
and then Christians who have lost their first love and no longer have a real care for people coming to Christ. That makes sense? And it'd be like Jonah. Remember, we see this. Jonah was most surely a follower of God and saved. But Jonah would look at the, look at the oldest son and say, that's exactly what I'm saying. Jonah would have said, right on, older brother. You and me have been living it right. These Ninevites, these uh, you know, swine-feeding harlot you know, following after. That's what the, Jonah would have said. Jonah would have agreed with the oldest son. So there is a, there is a fit here for a born-again believer who also has lost its first love and no longer has a heart and compassion for the unsaved. So let's take a look at this again this morning. We want to look at it from the, the most plain and applicable meaning based on the context. In the context, prodigal, lost sinners, oldest son, Pharisees, and that's who Jesus is speaking to in the audience. But the really cool thing about when, when God speaks... And the Bible, just like when you throw a rock in the water and the ripples go out, uh, there, is, there is the closest to the center, but the truth continues to expand out into all the other passages. So I wanted to give you that backdrop so you realize that this text can speak, if you were a Sunday school teacher or a Bible teacher, you could teach it from those other perspectives and it would still fit perfectly, but we want to look at it in the context of who Jesus' audience was that specific day. The first thing we'll look at this morning, if you're taking notes, is a wasted life. Uh, this uh, this young, younger son, the man had two sons in verse 11. The younger of them uh, tells his father, give me all that you have that belongs to me. In the Jewish law, the oldest son received two times the inheritance of the other sons. Uh, you would hear it referred to as a double portion. So the other brothers would, would not get that much. The oldest son was guaranteed to have twice as much as the younger son, the double portion. Uh, as you know in the scripture, the firstborn carries a high calling in the Bible. A father could distribute the inheritance early, but that was very uncommon. It's very uncommon to distribute the inheritance early. Asking for the inheritance early, to, er, if you're asking for the inheritance early, it would be akin to saying something like this. I've waited long enough to get my inheritance, and since you're still alive, can we just get to what I really want? That's kind of the the mindset of the younger son. I've been waiting around for you to kick the bucket. You're still here, and I really want to go party. Can I have what I want? You know if you've made this incredible meal. Say you worked really hard, you make this incredible meal, and you're your guest pushes away, barely has taken a bite, and says, when can I have the dessert? I'm not really into this other stuff you made. Now, that's just plain rude, right? That's just rude if somebody would do that. But asking for the inheritance, it just conveyed no love for the father at all. There's not, I don't really care about the relationship. I care about, and those are your parents. It breaks your heart if your kids say, I don't really love you, but I like what's in your bank account. I don't really want to hang out with you. I don't really, all right, I'll come to you. I'll come and hang out with you at Thanksgiving and maybe Christmas if we're in town. But I don't want, but I'll take any kind of other support you want to give me. And so there's no, there's no love, there's no relationship, not a desire for the relationship. And by the way, have you ever noticed the spats and the insults and the grudges that take place over the distribution of estates and wills after someone passes? It can get ugly, can't it? 
You find out a lot about people's motives and what their real affections are in those moments, don't you? But this son, he wanted the money to pursue what he believed would bring him fulfillment. I mean, people want fulfillment. Everyone wants some, might be their own definition of fulfillment. And we do have a definition of fulfillment. Whether we're saved or lost, we'll come up with a definition. It'll be a self-diagnosed, this is what I think I need. But he thinks this will bring him fulfillment. And his demand, and the father meeting his demand, so notice the father doesn't even argue with him. The father doesn't try and talk him out of it. The father meets the demand. It says right, uh, right there, the father give me. So he divided and gave him of his livelihood. Okay, go ahead and have it. I want to eat 12 bowls of Lucky Charms. All right. Talk to me in an hour or two. Right? He goes ahead and gives it to him. It's a picture. What is this a picture of? Well, meeting his demand, it's a picture of the biblical doctrine of free will. This is the biblical doctrine of free will. The man said, the young son, I want to do what I want. God says you can do exactly what you want. At least while you still have while you still have breath in your lungs, go ahead and choose. You're not choosing wisely, but you have the choice. God, remember Eve, way back in the garden, uh, uh, you know, I believe in sovereign grace. You know, I love our reformed brothers and sisters. I believe in sovereign grace, but I absolutely believe in free will. We had it in the garden. The choice was there to either eat of that tree or not eat of that tree. The free will has always been there. God's always said, you can squander the inheritance if you want to. They were given the whole garden, and they gave it up for a bite of something they thought would be better. Free will. It's a picture of free will here. But it's also a picture of man's collective rebellion. That man always rebels against God provides the best, and man thinks, and I, I, I think... That won't make me happy. This is what will. And by the way, the father, he knows how this will turn out. See, God knows exactly. He knows the son is not going to have the end state that he thinks he's going to have. So the father gives him what he asked for. Thomas Huxley said, a man's worst difficulties begin when he is able to do just as he likes. A man's worst difficulties begin when he is able to do just as he likes. This is America's problem. When America gets exactly what it wants, in, co- collectively as a nation, but individually, person by person, when everybody gets exactly what they want, you realize if everyone took what they want, you and I would be dead, robbed on a regular basis. If every single person got what they wanted, it's not a good scene, is it? In our nation, we're all familiar with the phrase of the Declaration of Independence, which we love that document that describes the inherent rights. Well, God might take issue with that term. (laughs) Rights of what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Had that said pursuit of holiness, we'd be in pretty good shape. Because when you pursue holiness, you'll actually find happiness. If you pursue happiness, you'll never find happiness. The pursuit of holiness is actually what brings joy and happiness. And you can't pursue holiness unless you pursue Jesus Christ. But thankfully, he pursues us first. That's what this chapter tells us. 
The other two parables, he pursues us, then we pursue him back, and then, you know, it's been well said, do you love your spouse or does your spouse love you? Hopefully yes to that. But in our nation, we're familiar with this pursuit of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, but for a million, this is a pseudo-life, this is a pseudo-liberty, because real liberty is found in Christ, and this is a pseudo-pursuit, or a pursuit of pseudo-happiness, I should say. That results in nearly, here's what it results in. It results in nearly everything and anything being permissible and even admirable. Not only is anything and everything permissible, but it's even admirable to the world, unless it comes from the Bible. The one exception is if it comes from the Bible, it's neither admirable nor permissible. Strange, huh? Not hurting your neighbor not stealing from your neighbor, being kind, loving your neighbor as yourself is not really permissible. But all other things are. And people claim that that mantra makes them happy and fulfilled to do anything I want to do. Yet more is always needed when you do what you want to do, right? More is always needed. You'll always need Something else. The human condition has to duplicate the highs of life. We have to duplicate the high of drugs. We have to duplicate, duplicate the high of immoral pleasures. We have to duplicate accomplishments, recognition, pats on the back to feed our prideful nature. We always have to reduplicate the high because the highs come and they go and we've got to go find another one. The sun went away to a far country, it says. Went to a far country. It says, verse 13, So after many days, the young son gathered all together. He took all that he had. He got everything he wanted. Travels to a far country. People try and go as far away from God as possible. This is another picture here. The farness we are. The, the, the distance between us and God. Now, it's already there when we're born in sin, but we actually will make the distance even greater because we run the opposite direction. Adam and Eve had a closeness to God, but once they had sinned, they were hiding. They weren't far away geographically, but they were far away spiritually. You're no farther from God in Antarctica than you are in Richmond, Virginia, geographically, right? The earth is round, and God is everywhere. <laughs> so in both cases, it doesn't matter if you're in the middle of Antarctica and no one else is there. You're no farther away from God there than you are here because God is in all places. But it's in the heart where people run away from God, far from God. It's why people can have ten Bibles in their house and not read one of them. You can have Bibles, they will never jump off the shelf and land in your hands. Reading the Scriptures does what? Well, it reveals the presence of God. And when you're in the presence of God, if you're not in harmony with God, in relation with God, it doesn't feel real good. So you want to drown that stuff out. You want to put the earbuds in. You want to stay on the smartphone. You want to watch TV. You want to talk on the phone. You want to do this. You want to do that. But you don't want to hear from God. You want to go to a faraway country or a faraway place in the mind. It's why you can invite your coworker to church a dozen times in 10 years, and they'll have a legitimate, legitimate, legitimate reason why they can't come. Like, wow, every time I ask you, there's something amazing going on. 
family in town, this, that, you know, this other thing, every single time. Well, yeah, they can come. But it's the light of God. It's not you. It's not the church. It's their conscience. They recognize that the presence of God will be revealed, and they would prefer to stay in a faraway country. I want to be in a faraway country, at least in their minds, where they don't have to think about the true and living God. Now, he is also a loving God. We'll get to that in a second. But again, the presence of God reveals our own rebellion, our own sin, our own intentions. Metaphorically, Satan helps people buy the plane ticket to a faraway country. Satan helps people buy the plane ticket to a faraway country. Not only that, he gives them the steady cash flow to stay there. Not only like help you get to the faraway country in your mind, but I'll keep feeding you enough cash that you can stay there. And he'll help people stay so busy, so entertained, so full of activities, they don't even think about God. They don't have time to think about God. um, Remember, God is light. This temporal world is darkness. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So they go away from the presence of God where they don't have the conviction of God, not have the conscience pricked. And this whole thing about Satan just keeping the world busy, you know, one of the acronyms for busy, bound under Satan's yoke. Saw an article recently, I can't remember the exact percentage, but a significant number of women in the article said, uh, the article interviewed a bunch of women. It was, I read this maybe three or four weeks ago, and I didn't grab the exact number, but it was a percentage of women, I want to say it was between 30 and 40% of women in the United States. These are women who said they would like to go to church and start going to church. The percentage, the exact percentage I can't remember, but they said the reason they don't go is they simply cannot find any time whatsoever to go. Well, that's a lie from Satan. Because God says six days shall a man work, and the seventh day rest. Now, God has given us all the same seven days, the same 24 hours. Satan has convinced people. Now, I'm not saying they don't believe this. They, you can self-believe anything. I'm not saying they aren't sincere in their thinking. They probably are. But that's a deception. Satan is convinced. You, can, you, you, you could go, but you don't have time. And that's, again, what we talked about. It's one of the things about when someone passes, important things really get revealed. All of a sudden, our priorities. The enemy wants people in a faraway country. So many are in a faraway country in their minds, and they don't know how they got there. They don't even know how they got there. When did my life become this jumbled? When did I get into this? How did I fall into this sin? How did I end up over here? People ask themselves those questions. Let's back to the son for a second here. He's openly rebellious. He kind of knows how he got there. <laughs> some, some of us before Christ, we knew how we got there. I got saved in Miami, Florida. I went away from family. I didn't want anything to do with uh, my Christian family. I wanted far away. I remember I told you my testimony. My dad would say, is there any... Do you, can you find a church to go to? And I would say, there are no Christians here. <laughs> I meant that. In my warped thinking, I thought there were no Christians in South Florida. And all around me were born-again believers, and I never saw them. Because I was blind. I was in a faraway country, in a faraway place, in my own world. The son, he's openly rebellious. 
He wants all the pleasures of sin, and he wants all what the world has to offer, because it is quite enticing what, what the world has to offer. And he's enjoying his permanent vacation until he reaches into his pocket one day. Uh, where is the cash? He has invited everyone to the bar, and he doesn't have anything to pay. Let's take a look at the next broken life. Uh, if you're taking notes, broken life. Let's be clear here. Sin can be fun for a period of time. Sin can be a lot of fun for a season, for a moment. But the consequences, the guilt, the shame can last a lifetime, can it? And these are the multitudes that are gathered to hear Jesus. They are feeling the consequences, the effects of sin. That's why they're thirsty to hear Jesus. Can you get us out of this mess? The Pharisees don't think they're in a mess. So they are there, like, they're, they're, the older brother, like, what are you going to, are you going to incinerate these people? Because that's what they need. Some of them are really bad. I mean, they're all real bad, but some of them really need to be judged right now. But they themselves are in this place where they, they find themselves at the end of their rope. This son, like so many that are gathered to hear, uh, hear Jesus speak, um, he finds out, this son finds out, the, the very same Satan who Revelation chapter 9, I don't know if you know this verse, but Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, says that Satan deceives the whole world. He deceives the whole world. But he finds out that Satan sells one thing but delivers another. Bait and switch, we call it, right? Satan sells one thing, but he delivers something different. He sells happiness, but he never delivers happiness. He sells peace, but he never delivers peace. He sells pleasure, but it's very temporary and ends up unfulfilling. Remember when you were a kid? Any of you ever watched Chitty Chitty Bang Bang when you were a kid? I did not like that long-nosed guy. Remember him? Comes out, you know, he's got a net. He's using lollipops and candy, right? Horrifying kids around the country when they see them get in the cage and they're trying to get out of that thing. Then they're under the city or whatever it is. But he's walking around enticing with things, isn't he? Now, I wouldn't have been fooled. When you have a nose like this, it's really weird like that, and you're wearing a top hat, and you're, you're looking a little strange, I wouldn't have been all that attracted to this cage. But remember, he didn't have the cage. It had a thing on the outside that it looked like a carnival thing, and, and after it the, gets rolled up and all that is exposed. But that's what Satan does. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he knows our flesh already wants this stuff. So it's not hard to entice people because our flesh is born and sin already wants these things. So then all you have to do is dangle them. That's what he does with the young son. The enemy sets up in the world a carnival, but no one ever wins the prizes. You ever gone to that too? And uh, all you've got to do, it's a, it, the, the guy says, it's really simple and you can win this bear that's like the size of your car, right? You know. Uh, and that mattered when you were a kid. You didn't want the little tiny thing. But you know, the chances of winning it are like one in a million. You know, it's, and then you find out that the ball will never actually fit in that hole, but you didn't find that out until later and you got older. Right? So you could, you could try it all day long, but it's actually slightly larger. And, but people keep playing the game, hoping they're going to win big. Hoping that this time it's going to work. Hoping this time I'll be really happy. 
But when people end up addicted, when they end up bankrupt, broken relationships, broken marriages, they feel cheated, they feel abused, they're hopeless, they're depressed, they're full of anxiety, even suicidal. We have a lot of we have a problem with suicide in our country. People so hopeless, they take their own lives. They realize that what they had pursued, and maybe even what they had enjoyed for a little while, remember the things that people pursue at a time they could have enjoyed them. But they realized it was a mirage. You ever seen a mirage? You know, it looks like something in the distance and just the heat. How else do you explain the Elvis Presleys, the Marilyn Monroes, the Whitney Houstons, the long, long, long list of wealthy and famous people who had it all? And yet they were still empty. These are their own words. Sad, lonely, suicidal, depressed. Here's what Satan tells everyone. He whispers in everyone's ears. He goes, those are the exceptions. Isn't that true? I saw Warren Buffett on TV last night. He was sitting beside, uh, I was watching a little clip on uh, an NFL biography, and he was, I can't remember which NFL player he was sitting there. Beside. Oh, it was in Donovan McSue, who just signed the biggest contract in, uh, on, in, in, on the defense for the Miami Dolphins. And he was sitting beside Warren Buffett, and, you know, Warren Buffett, him both have a big smile. And see, the enemy would say, see, they're smiling. Now, I don't know anything about either their faith, but I'm saying, uh, I, do, I have read things about Warren Buffett. I don't know about Sue's. But Satan will whisper in people's ears, those are the exceptions. Marilyn Monroe, Whitney Houston, Michael Jackson, you know, whoever it may be. They ended up not happy, but they're, they're the slim minority. But they're not the minority. The ending of their lives was exceptionally public. That's what it was. It was exceptionally public, not exceptionally different. And it was exceptionally tragic. We, we recognize that. The people that appear to have it all together, even now, the people that are unsaved, that appear to have it all together, and many times are at no more peace and fulfillment than those that have tragically fallen prematurely in a way that everybody saw. Understand that. People can string life together for 40 years and be in a pig slop, if you, if you will, for all during that time. And on the outside, make it look good. True? This is what the wealthy and famous do. They trot out their PR people. They send out a press release. Everything's fine. I know you caught them in a weird moment. Right? Everything's fine. Nothing's unusual. They're doing great. Money can hide a lot of things, can it? Money for a while can hide a lot of things. It hides nothing from God. It doesn't hide anything from God. But it can hide a lot of things from people. You can buy coverage. You can buy protection. You can buy a PR firm that will make sure we represent you on Twitter and Instagram that everything is great. You can buy all that. Your handlers can send out the information. They can handle your speaking engagement. They can even write how you respond to things when you've said something that everyone knows is way out of bounds. They'll help you write the response. True? But when you're out of money, and you're out of friends, and you're out of food, well, everything changes, doesn't it? Because all of a sudden, your PR handlers aren't there anymore. Because they don't want 
They don't do it for free. They never really loved you that much. They never really were there for you. They were there as long as you were paying the freight. And this guy, this young son, he's lost everything. There's no hiding when you're in a desperate condition, is there? His son found out that true friends are really hard to find. That's why we need a body of believers, amen? True friends are hard to find. Everyone's around when the cash is flowing. Everyone's around when you're buying the drink. Everyone around when dinner's on me, right? The business is doing well, but after that's all gone, they're gone too. Many gathered to hear Jesus. They've already hit rock bottom. They don't care what the Pharisees think about them. They don't even care what they think about themselves. They just want to know, what does Jesus think about me? What will he be willing to do? This boy's hit lot bottom. This son's hit lock, uh, rock bottom. We know from the context, in the context, the true context, he's a Jewish son. And a Jewish son feeding swine is not a good picture. It was, a, it was an abomination to be in that place. It says he was trying to eat the pods. He would have eaten the pods if he could. The pods that are speaking of, the pods in that part of the world, humans can't digest them, so he can't eat them. Pigs can eat them. Pigs can eat anything. He could not eat them. He was so hungry, he wanted to eat them, but he knew he couldn't digest them. And that could cause serious problems. When you eat things you can't digest, you've got a big, big problem. And he's desperate at this point. He's reached rock bottom. And when you reach the bottom, you're at the end of yourself, and you have an opportunity to look up. You have to believe you're drowning to cry out for desperation. I mean, most of us don't like embarrassing situations. We don't like to go to the beach and act like we're being attacked by a shark, which has happened this summer a bunch of times. We don't want to act like we're drowning. And truly, I'm not talking about goofing off. I'm talking about crying out with blood-curdling desperation. We don't like to do that unless it's a real moment, right? And at that moment, if it's real, embarrassment is out the window, isn't it? You don't care what people think. You're really going to fight for your life. That's where he's at. He's in a desperate condition. He says, I could perish here now. And he would. No one there cared. No one was willing to give him anything. The other people in the other country have no pity on him. He's a Jewish visitor as far as they're concerned. There's no interest in helping him out. The world's a pretty cold place, isn't it? People have found this out, that there's not really a whole lot of compassion out there. The son realizes he would rather be an owned and provided for slave than die as an outcast covered in filth. That's a good recognition. You know, if I were to go home, I wonder, I wonder, could I be received? And he begins to rehearse how he would humbly go home. If I'm going to go home, how do I do this? Well, I'll say to myself, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and you are no longer worthy to be called your son. This is what repentance actually looks like. It's not a prayer for fire insurance. It's not, hey, uh, I'm really sorry I did that. Please forgive me. I want to go back out and do it again. This is, I'm willing to come home if I have to scrub dishes, work all over the fields, do whatever it takes. I don't even deserve forgiveness. It's, uh, it's the same image where Jesus sees the sinner beating, the publican beating against his chest, being wor- be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Pharisee says, I'm glad I'm not like that publican. This is a true picture of repentance. 
1 Peter 5, 5 says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so he begins to head home. If you're taking notes, he begins to head home to a loving father. If you're taking notes, a loving father. He gets to head home. He has it rehearsed in his head what he's going to say. I'm going to say, I'm not worthy. Make me like a hired servant. Verse 20, arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off. You know, God sees people. God saw me coming home before I ever came home. God saw you coming home before you ever came home. God actually sees when the wheels start turning. You know, I got saved in 1995, but there was months before that that I was kind of on the way home. Didn't know it. Coming to my senses, coming to myself. And you too, if you look back, you'll see that God was the one orchestrating, putting people in your life to bring you to that place of brokenness, bottom of the barrel, where you'd look up and say, I've got to reach up to heaven. I wonder if God would take me. The Father's response is a picture of the character and nature of God the Father. It's God's heart and nature. It's his love for mankind. Listen to me, everyone. This is so important. God's heart and nature, his love for mankind, is what separates him from all the gods that are portrayed in the religions of men. This is unique about God's characteristic. Zeus and Apollo do not lovingly wait for you to come home. Allah is not lovingly waiting for anyone to come home. The gods of the Egyptians, Buddha, all of these others, it's a working Tower of Babel up to them. Big, big difference. All the world's religions, with the exception of genuine faith in Jesus Christ, are man's attempt to reach their God. Or, like the Pharisees, even attempting through their efforts to reach the true and living God. There are people trying to reach the true God through a false ladder. Because the ladder has to come down from God, not be built up by us. In the parable of the sheep, we see the shepherd. That's a picture of the son, Jesus Christ. Searching. In the second parable, we see the searching for the coin. We have the light. That's a picture of the Holy Spirit. Shining. And now... We have the Father, God the Father, waiting. So we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all listed in Jesus' conversation with the people here. But the Father is anticipating the Son's return, waiting for the Son, and waiting with expectancy for the Son to come home. The parables, they're actually cumulative. They build on each other. There's a lot to cover here. We're doing our best to cover it in two weeks, right? It's cumulative. It's illustrating the Trinity's unity in bringing man to repentance. First parable is the Son. The second parable is the Holy Spirit. And the third is God the Father. The Trinity is in unison to work on our hearts and minds to bring us to a place of brokenness, repentance, and ultimately, please forgive me from a place of sincerity, not, hey, I just want to get out of this. Get me out of this. Pharaoh did that. Hey, get me out of this. And Moses would pray. And Pharaoh would go right back and do the same thing again and again and again. Every time that Moses prayed for him. It was never a genuine repentance. See, in the um, scriptures it tells us in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to who? The Father, but through me. The whole thing involves God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus is the way, but the Father is the waiting one. The Father says he runs to the Son. He runs to the Son and falls on him, kisses his neck. He runs to the Son. By the way, men in the Far East and the Middle East, in those times and even today, they don't run. That's very undignified. Very undignified. Those of you that are from cultures, I know we've got some of you that are from the, the Near East, or, uh, so you, uh, you might understand this, that they, men of old age, it is a, it's a dignified thing to stay there and you come to them. This father drops the dignity and runs because God isn't like the false gods. He actually loves people enough that he sent his only son to die a very humiliating death. That's running to mankind, isn't it? I can't remember if it was, I think it was Pastor Greg Laurie. I know, I think maybe Joe Foch repeated it, but I think the first time I heard it, maybe it was last year at the Harvest Crusade when Greg was talking about, I want to say one word of encouragement to parents if you have prodigals. You can have prodigals, and that does not mean that you did not raise them correctly, in the, not perfectly, because none of us can do that. Correctly is different than perfectly. <laughs> we'll never do perfection, but we can do correction. We can do it the right way and still miss the mark, but God fills in those gaps. But, you know, as I think it was Greg that mentioned that even God had prodigals, because Adam and Eve, I, would, I think you'd agree, he raised them perfectly. Right? God doesn't make mistakes, and they turned away from his perfect parenting. And so even though most of this context today is about sinners and the self-righteous Pharisees, just an encouragement to you as parents that we can do it correctly and People can still turn away from the right teaching because if Adam and Eve did it with God, we are certainly nowhere near God's ability to parent perfectly. But here's what the loving Father does for us in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. Listen to this. Titus chapter 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived. Remember Satan deceived. It's not just, that, not just that we do dumb things. We actually do get deceived as well. We can't blame Satan for most of our stuff, but we can probably some of it. We were once foolish. That's on us. Disobedient. That's on us. Deceived. Serving various lust and pleasures. Because they're fun for a little while, right? You can remember those days. Living in malice and envy. Hateful and hating one another. But here it is. Here's the loving Father. But when the kindness and love of God... Our Savior toward man appeared, not by works, this is for the Pharisees, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. That's the Father. Not by works. He brought the Son in. And if you're taking notes, I've got to wrap it up, a forgiven life. What does the Father do? Well, he takes the Son, brings out a robe, puts a robe on him, puts a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet, says, slaughter the fatted calf. We're going to have a big feast. If you're taking notes, the forgiven life. The second part of Titus chapter 3, the middle verse 5 through verse 8 says this. goes on to say, same passage I just read. Through the washing of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. The, the dirty former being in a pig's pen is cleansed away by who? The Holy Spirit whom he poured out abundantly on us, like putting the robe on us, putting the ring on us, poured out abundantly on us through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his what? Grace. Not, hey, you would be saved had you stayed here like the older brother. No. 
you didn't do anything right, and I'm going to save you anyway. You did it all wrong. You, you were really rebellious. You ran off our country. No, by his grace, we should become heirs. He said, I'd be willing to be a slave for you. The father says, no, you're going to be back as a son. Heirs. The ring, the robe. Heirs. According to the hope of eternal life. He said he sinned against heaven. God says, yes, you did sin against heaven. But by repenting, you'll receive heaven. This is a faithful saying. goes on to say in verse 8. Now listen, this tells you when someone has truly been radically changed. This is a faithful saying of these things that I want you to affirm constantly. That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So the Pharisees believed they were saved by good works. Titus, Paul writing to Titus, Paul's saying, no, no, no. You were saved out of filth and now you will do good works because you've been washed by the Holy Spirit. And now the son who did want to go to the far country will actually want to be in relationship with the father, work with the father, and rightly represent the father. That's a picture of a forgiven life, a changed life, a new creation, a new purpose in life, a new love for the things of God. Someone says, I I don't love anything about God. Well, have you really been saved? It's a fair question to ask. The Father knows when we've come home for good. When we've come home for good, the fatted calf will be brought out. We're no longer seeking just a quick visit to calm our conscience. Do you see the difference? This is coming home for good. The Father sees him far off. The the Father represents God. He knows everything. He knows the Son is coming back this time forever to stay. When I came home for the... For the last time in 1995, I had asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior, I don't know, dozens of times before that. Why did none of them stick? Because I hadn't come home with a repentant heart. I came home with head knowledge, but not a repentant heart. The Father knows we've come home for good. Have you come home forever in this room? Have you come home forever? If you have, you've seen the red carpet of God's grace rolled out. You've seen his grace rolled out. You've seen his spirit come in. He receives this robe. He receives this ring. He receives this sandals. The father doesn't give him a burlap sack. Say, this is about what you're going to get. You're getting a burlap sack. Get out there with the slaves. No. He says, you are part of the inheritance. You're adopted. We're called the sons and daughters of God. And by the way, when you don't have money, you can't buy sandals, a ring, or a robe. The things that God gives us come directly from us. Lately, I've been meditating on uh, 2 Timothy 1.7 a lot. The last several days, God has not given me a spirit of fear, power, love, and a sound mind. I find it interesting, the order. God, according to Acts 1.8, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive power. Do you notice that power comes before love, but though love is the greater commandment? Why? Because without God's power, you can't actually have true love. So God says, I have to give you the power to love unlovable people and the power to love vertically, me, being God. Power, love, and a sound mind. Do you know how many people would give their paycheck for a sound mind? Do you know people are giving their paycheck to find a sound mind? To find love? And to some extent, to find power. But we're not looking for Power hungry, we're looking for power to serve. 
Jesus served in power. He loved purely, and he always had a sound mind. Jesus never had an anxious thought. I do. How about you? I have lots of anxious thoughts. I'm having one. No, I'm not having one now, but I've had some recently, maybe this morning. Uh, but, but I've meditated on the power. So you know that God gives us that. Just like he can give you a, ro- a ring and a robe and sandals, he can give you power, love, and a sound mind. He has the authority and the riches to do it. Isn't that great? That's what he's willing to give. Song of Solomon, verse 2, 4 says, He brought me into the banqueting house, and his banner over me is love. He loves him into the kingdom. You know, we've got to close. There's not much time, but the only thing I want to say about the self-righteous response, understand this, I don't have much time to spend on it. The, the older brother, there's a lot that we could be said. Understand he's angry. He's refusing to be joyful. He has no love for his brother whatsoever. He has no care in seeing broken lives restored. He didn't have the heart of his father. This is not a good picture. This is someone who has head knowledge but hasn't really been changed. This is Saul before he became Paul. Saul, before he became Paul, would beat and kill Christians thinking he was doing God a favor. This was the Pharisees. They killed Jesus on a cross thinking God was happy with them. This, and, and doing it for righteousness sake. Paul said he was zealous for the law. Above everyone, he said he was the most zealous for the law. But there's also a save parallel. Remember I mentioned Jonah. Jesus said in the letters to the churches, Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 and 4, he said, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they're apostles and are not, and you've found them to be liars. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Christians can become so used to being Christians that they don't love people anymore. They don't have a heart for souls. They can walk by people in the mall and don't care they're going to hell. They cannot care about their family members. They can rail against the darkness all the time but not reach out to people in darkness. Does that make sense? We have a lot of people that on Facebook rant against darkness nonstop, and they're not reaching anyone in darkness. True? This is a fact. And the Pharisees were that way. They could rail against sin all day long, but they didn't love sinners. Christian, we have to have tender heart. There is a Christian parallel here. Jonah was like that, and God didn't let him stay that way. He won't let us stay that way if we're really saved. We'll close with the last We have a real reason to rejoice. Look at verse 31 and 32. Son, you're always with me. Verse 32, it was right that we should make merry and be glad. Your brother was what? Dead. And now he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. All of the things that that we saw in in last week, verses 7 and verses 10, that all of heaven rejoices when one person comes to Christ. We need to get excited when people come to Jesus. There's a reason to rejoice when a prodigal comes home. We don't sit there and tell them for the next 10 years, do you realize how bad you were? No. We welcome them with open arms because we, Paul said, we were once just like them. We were just as out there. You see people doing things, I cannot believe they think that way. Really? Do you remember your before Christ days? I was as smart as this would. You know, 
lost as could be, Billy Graham says God's forgiveness is not just a casual statement. It is the complete blotting out of all dirt and degradation of our past, present, and future. Warren Wearsby said regarding Jesus and these three pictures and the, the, the shepherd, the coin, and, and, uh, and, and then here in the, the son, he said, he was lost, being uh, the son, I am the way. He was ignorant, I am the truth, being Jesus. He was dead, I am the life. We'll close with that. You know, there used to be an old, I don't know if it's an old hymn, I just thought of it as I was driving in this morning. Remember that song that said, earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling? Calling, oh sinner, what? Come home. That's the heart of God. That's our God versus the world's gods. Their gods can't make you happy, can't bring fulfillment. They're not longing for you to come home, and they certainly will not run to meet you and forgive you. Amen? But we have a God that if we truly repent, we have a hope of eternity and a true relationship with him. Amen? Let's close. Father, we thank you for your great love, your unique character. You said that no man can come to you unless you've drawn him unto yourself. And Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, they've never drawn to you, I pray that even today they would give their heart and life to you. That they would receive the forgiveness you offer. If, if, while their heads are bowed, if there's anyone here and say, I, I, I've never asked Jesus, I've never come to the Father, really come home for good. I've never asked him to be my Lord. Just raise your hand right where you're at. Say, I, I want to do that. I want to give my heart and life to Christ. I want to be forgiven. I want to be cleansed from all the past. I want to know the peace that passes all understanding. Anyone, just raise your hand right where you're at. I want to pray with you. We want to pray with you. This message, um, this message can be preached and should be re-preached in your life and my life. Because we're going to meet a lot of people out there that they don't know what Luke chapter 2 really means. But if you're saved, you do. And if everyone here knows the Lord, praise the Lord. But if anyone here doesn't, I hope that you'll make things right with the Lord. Take his terms of peace. Take his love as a father and come to him. But for all of us that are Christians, I hope that we're reminded that we're saved to have the same heart of the father. We're to have this heart. We're not going to be perfect. We're going to mess up. But we're going to have the heart of the father. What? Let's not have the heart of the older brother. We want to do faithful work, but we want to have the heart of the Father, willing to forgive, willing to really, truly rejoice when people come to know the Lord and do what we can to bring them there. Amen?